want to welcome all of you again today. We thank the Lord Jesus that he has brought you here to worship. And I do pray that is the desire of your heart that throughout the week you've been looking forward to beginning the week with the worship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is our desire to bring him glory. We want to crown him Lord of all. I can at least say <clears throat> we might be wobbly if we put that crown up there, but God the Father's already crowned him. He is sitting there at the Father's right hand in splendor and glory and majesty. He hears us when we pray. He hears us when we sing to him. He hears us when we bring his word. And I do pray that we will know his presence and his blessing here today. <clears throat> this is not a meeting of the Rotary Club. If you're in the Rotary Club, I'm not insulting you. I'm just telling plain and simple. The living God meets with his people and they meet in the name of his son. And we are here to do exactly that. And I pray it is truly from the heart. God loves wholehearted worship. <clears throat> that said, for those of you visiting with us, we are grateful, grateful to have you wherever you are from, whether you're from here in Pensacola or from another city here or from another state. We are delighted that you are here and we pray that God in his mercy will bless and encourage each one of you as you worship with us. <clears throat> if you have a cell phone, would you please check it now and make sure that it is on mute. I don't think we have little ones that would need care. If you have a little one with you, as we have ours here, um, and they have one of those rough mornings, they're having trouble quieting, you can take them right through that door, right back there in the back. That room has a large screen uh, whereby you may continue to follow the message. And uh, we also have a nursing mother's room back there if we have any nursing mothers. I've uh, learned over the last uh, couple of months that sometimes we have a very large gathering in that room that I'm unaware of because I'm in here. So... Uh, <clears throat> I think just about anyone back there can tell you where the nursing mother's room is if you so need that facility. It's a blessed place, as a matter of fact. We've begun a series of messages through the letter to the Hebrews or the epistle to the Hebrews. We have been working our way through the first four verses uh, those of you that have been here since we've started may get a little weary of hearing this, but I say for the sake of our visitors and for those who have not been with us, that and the first four verses are often called the exordium because it's obviously the beginning of something very similar to a sermon, if indeed it isn't a sermon. It probably is. <clears throat> it is a sermon delivered in letter form, but it doesn't have... The author named, it doesn't even have the people receiving it named, but it is quite clear as we read through it, it is those 
who are deeply and profoundly uh, involved in the Old Covenant, familiar with the Old Covenant. And many of them are fearful of the coming persecution. And that being the case, they were ready to flee the gospel and the New Covenant and to return to the Old Covenant. The Jews in those days... <coughs> were a safe place because they could worship and practice their religion in the Roman Empire, generally uh, undisturbed. But Christians uh, were another story. And it appears that on the horizon for them, persecution is coming. They may have tasted some of it, but not to the depths that apparently they're about to. Brethren, I cannot think of a more important thought than clinging to Christ in the days ahead. So I urge you with all of my heart, hear the word of God in this precious epistle. Now that being the case, we're going to read the first four verses together today. We will lift our voices in reading those verses Together, Please stand with me one more time. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 1 through 4 together. Let us, let us be aware now of the Trinitarian implications of these four verses and especially the Christology, the doctrine of Christ that is set before us in these beautiful verses. Beginning in verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to his, by his Son, <clears throat> whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Please remain standing for prayer. Unless you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to stand, then at that point, please be seated. Otherwise, let us stand in God's presence and let us unite our hearts at the throne of grace. Great and glorious God, all of heaven rings with thy praises, blessing and honor and glory and power, wisdom, riches, strength be unto thee. The heavenly citizens all magnify thee. And we pray that our little voices with theirs bring thee much glory today. 
And may it do our hearts much good to magnify thee, to know thee. We want thy spirit, Lord. We want Christ held before us. We want our Savior and our Lord held up for praise and glory. May we join our hearts with the saints in heaven. And Lord, may we know a oneness here. Oh, Father, how easily we are divided. How easily we are distracted. How easily, oh God, we can not love one another as Christ has loved us. Oh, may it be our lot today that the Spirit of God, that mighty, powerful, creating and resurrecting force, fill our hearts, overflow our hearts with the love of God. May our hearts burn with love for Thee. And as we hear Thy Word, may Thy truths stamp themselves forever upon our hearts. And now, O oh God, help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to obey. And help us to worship thee. I pray that thou would save the lost in our midst. Father, surely there are lost ones here. Many of them don't even realize that they are on the precipice of hell. Lord God, open their eyes to their danger. Help them to see the saving mercies of Christ Jesus. And may thy people rejoice rejoice and rejoice forevermore that thou hast saved us. We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in time past, God revealed himself and his divine purpose in the words of the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, the Jews had great advantage over the Gentiles, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Oracles means the sayings, the words of God. Paul says that in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. But our spirit-breathed text tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. And the author of this sacred text gives us these four verses, the exordium, to introduce themes that he will develop throughout the holy words of this letter. The primary audience is believing Jews, though the principles apply to all. The primary theme of the letter is simple. Jesus Christ, His gospel, and His new covenant are superior to the old covenant. Therefore, do not abandon your faith in Christ in perilous times. The whole letter is about that. I will repeat it. Jesus Christ, 
His gospel and His new covenant are superior to the old covenant. Therefore, because that is true, do not abandon your faith in Christ in perilous times. Most of us here have never known the perilous times that God's people have throughout the ages of the Christian church. And if it comes to us, and I believe it will, I hope it does not. That's one of those times when I hope I'm so wrong that I can fall down laughing at my error. But presently, I'm not convinced. You are facing a God-hating world, a God-hating government, and an increasing God-hating populace. And when you stand for Christ in the face of that, you will find out what our brothers and sisters have faced over the centuries. May just cost you your job. Are you ready to walk from your job for the name of Jesus Christ? It's easy to go, yeah, until they're looking you in the face and handing you your pink slip. If you have a wife and children, all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's a cost to following Jesus. That's right. The Christian life is under the cross. If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross and deny himself daily. Or let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. There isn't any other Christian life. So, to show the vast superiority of God's Son to the old covenant prophets, the Holy Spirit gives us seven extraordinary assertions about the Son. These assertions or these declarations, these statements of fact set the stage for the glorious revelation of Jesus, our great high priest. If you love Jesus, this whole letter is about him and his glorious work to save his people from their sins. <clears throat> At one level, we may summarize the entire letter in chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That's the letter. And it speaks to us now. With that, we come to our sixth description of the Son. The title of our sermon is Seven Descriptions of Christ. Redeemer. And may our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, be pleased to bless us by giving us understanding and faith in God's infallible word. We have two main heads this morning. The first one gets the lion's share. <clears throat> 
What did the son do? He purged our sins. What did the son do? He purged our sins. Well, now the Spirit of God announces this sixth assertion about the Son. When He had, by Himself, purged our sins. The word purged means to purify or to cleanse. He cleansed us. He cleansed His people from their sins because sin, any sin, every sin is foul. It is filthy. It stinks in what it is and what it does. It corrupts. It destroys. It defiles. No sin is okay. Every sin is damnable. Any sin that cleaves to you will damn you for eternity if you don't have someone, some way to purge you of it, to cleanse you of it. We cannot stand before our God in heaven in our filthy rags, in our filthy sins, our lies, our violation of His day of worship, our adulteries, our sexual sins, Uh, dishonoring our father and our mother. By the way, that's higher on the list than murder. Did you know that? Honor your father and your mother. We've got a generation that's doing everything it can to try to get around that commandment. It's above lying. And lying is of the devil. So says Jesus. It's above lying. Everything in the second table. That's why it begins. It's called the hinge between our responsibilities to God and our responsibilities to people. Honor your father and your mother. Now, we need cleansing. Cleansing. I used to preach in prison. For many years I had that blessed ministry. And when I would have the men gathered in front of me, I said, how many of you in here for murder? And every now and then I'd get one, two, maybe three hands. I said, how many of you are in here for theft? Almost every hand goes up. I said, now let me ask you before God, how many of you have honored your father and your mother according to, To God's commandment. No hands ever went up. And that's one of the reasons they were in that jail. They didn't start with the authority that God gave them. And so they went on to do whatever they pleased. Friends. Sin. Every sin. Any sin at any time is damnable. It is filthy. And we need to be cleansed or we have no hope of everlasting life. So, Jesus, when he had by himself purged our sins, 
should be wonderful words to us. There is someone by whom I might be cleansed before God. How glorious. What a mercy from God. So, behind the word purged, that's not a word we find very often in relation to our sins in the scriptures in the New Testament. But behind that word purged stands the Mosaic Covenant. That's why it's important. Paul is talking to people who are, by and large, Jews. There certainly may have been Gentiles in that congregation and among those people that were receiving this letter. But they would know that word purged because it stood as part of the Mosaic Covenant with its Levitical priesthood and the Day of Atonement and the blood of the covenant. And in the sixth description, we have the first mention of Christ's once for all sacrificial death for the sins of his people. I want to repeat that. Those may just be words that you hear on Sunday and then don't think about six other days. I want you to think about them all the time. I believe God does because he saved them forever right here. What you and I need every day is the cleansing of Jesus Christ. So we have the first mention of Christ once for all sacrificial death for the sins of his people. And this astounding thought should grip us and give rise to fervent worship. I mean, when we stand here and go and crown him Lord of all, it ought to be coming from your heart of hearts. It ought to be pushing out from right here. <clears throat> Why should we crown him? Because he purged us from our sins. He purged us. From our sins. We remember. Christians remember the wormwood and the gall. They know the bitterness of their sins. And they crown the one who purged them. Who cleansed them. Who saved their souls. Now. The. The thing that I would press on you before we go further is that the one who purged us, and I will repeat this a little later on, the one who purged us, uh, purchased, purged us from our sins is the heir and Lord of all things. That's who. The creator of all things. The one who is the brightness of of God's glory, the express image of his person, and the one who's upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. That's who purged us from our sins. Glory to God. This one who hung upon Calvary's cross, whose precious blood ran from his head, his hands, and his feet is the one who forever purged us of our foul and shameful and guilt-ridden stains.
I have said before, and I don't mind repeating, and I know Pastor Clarence used to say the same, and he and I both know men who have said this. We're not saying anything original, but we are saying something that everyone in here ought to ponder. Suppose we pulled down that screen and showed everybody your life and showed it from the inside out and the lies you've told and the foul and wretched rebellions against heaven that you have done, every one of them demanding your damnation. How many of you would sit through that film who would not either try to run for the door or climb under one of these pews? The one who is our creator. The one who these seven descriptions define. Purged us from those sins. Now, to better understand the three words, purged our sins, we must understand what made it a necessity and a reality. What made it a necessity? That's easy. Sin is filthy, and we must be cleansed. And a reality, you and I cannot cleanse ourselves. Only one can do that. And thank God in the truest sense. Thank God he provided that cleansing. Jesus Christ the Lord. So, in our messages thus far, we have seen that the letter to the Hebrews speaks from beginning to end about the superiority of God's Son. Yet we have learned that the Son is presented to us in two ways. Now, we have a number of visitors today. Uh, This is kind of a deep end of the pool thought for the next few moments. And uh, I will do my best. I was just going to do a very quick summary for us who have labored through it the last couple of weeks. But I will do my best to try to make it as clear as possible. Because while it is a mystery, while it is something far above our comprehension, it is also something we must know and believe about Jesus Christ. So, we have learned that in the letter to the Hebrews, the Son is presented to us in two ways. Divine and human. Divine and human. In other words, Hebrews says things about the Son that could only be true if He was God. At the same time, it says things about Him that could only be true if He was a human man. Now, for most of us, that doesn't fit together easily. How can he be spoken of as God and yet at the same time, as we'll read later in the letter, 
must be perfected. Isn't God perfect? Why does the Son need to be perfected? Why must He be perfected by suffering and affliction? Why should God have to suffer? God doesn't suffer. Are you with me? Now, to better understand this, in fact, let me put it, let me put it in the form of a question. How can that be? What I just said, how can that be? The answer is the miraculous incarnation of the eternal Son of God. And to better understand that, we discovered in our last message that Hebrews reveals both a Trinitarian Christology and incarnational Christology. I'm not here to just throw out impenetrable words to you. Uh, I did spend a little time on this last week. Let me give just a bit of it uh, again for those who are here and visiting with us. What we're saying is this, what I'm driving at, what the letter to the Hebrews is presenting is that the doctrine of Christ's person and work in the letter to the Hebrews is this. The eternal Son of God was, is, and ever will be God. God does not change. God is incomprehensible. No beginning. No end. Always has been. Always will be. Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. That is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Set before us over and over. In the writings of the New Testament, hinted at in types and shadows in the Old Testament, but brought into light. And it is a great and it is a high mystery, too high for us. But it's what we see here. So when I say Trinitarian Christology, I'm talking about his place in the Trinity as the eternal Son of God. <clears throat> And when we speak of incarnational Christology, we're talking about the doctrine of Christ set before us in Hebrews that speaks of the eternal Son becoming a human. And not just a human, but becoming a man. So, all that God is, the eternal Son is and ever will be. But the infallible word of God abundantly sets forth with clarity that Jesus was truly human. He wasn't, as some people would call it, a ghost in a machine. It wasn't like a human shell on the outside with God somehow dwelling on the inside. There was an extraordinary union, a unity 
of eternal God with true humanity in such a way as that there is one person, but there was no change in the Godhood of the Son, and he is fully human as a man. You say, that's hard to understand. It sure is. But it's the teaching of the Word of God, and it's all through the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, that being said, to help us understand this just a little bit more, Jesus' true humanity, we might say, is real and all that human is, Jesus as the man was and is, but now he's glorified. He was without sin in this world. That's the difference between your and my humanity and his. We're humans, but all we know is sin. He was a human who did not sin. Now, further, I want us to understand a little bit more. We can handle this. I can put it this simply. God became man. But his Godhood didn't change. And it didn't change his humanity from being humanity. Two natures. Deity. Divine. And human in one person. So, Trinitarian Christology, the doctrine of God in Hebrews that paints him as God, God the Son, and incarnational Christology, the eternal Son becoming man. Both of those are very plainly set before us. So, that being said, I'm going to run at it one more time. <clears throat> we may put it this way. God became man or creator became and united with creation. Let me make sure I'm very clear. When I say became, I mean as a man, he was born, he lived, he died as a man. <clears throat> but his godness never changed in uniting with manhood. Please keep that in mind. Now, we've learned that God is the one and only Almighty Creator. He was, He is. He always will be the eternal God with no beginning or end. He never became. God doesn't become. God is. But creatures always become. Some of you can go home, you can go open up a trunk, or you can go to your file online and see pictures of you years ago, and you realize, oh, how did I start looking like a raisin? 
Well, you're aging. You're changing. You're always becoming. All of us, this is humanity. And there's a reason. Sin. We die because of sin. And throughout our lives, we see that beautiful flower and we keep living. And if the Lord lets us live long enough, we don't look like that beautiful flower anymore. Gravity does amazing things to the body. Doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Age, sin. Some of our sinful practices put some lines on our forehead and our face. Oh, my brethren, we need purging. But I repeat, God never becomes, He just always is. Creation always becomes. So we have yet another mystery because the eternal son, creator, united himself with humanity, creation, in one person. And then another way to put it is likewise simple. Jesus is the son who became son. Now we're going to take that and unfold it in greater detail as we start moving through the letter because it's all through the letter. Jesus is the son that became son. So if he's the creator, how is it that he became son? Wasn't he always the son? We're going to answer that question. But it's Now, if you think I'm giving you word puzzles here, I'm not. I just want you to recognize you can't understand much of Hebrews if you don't understand Christ as the eternal son and Christ as the God-man. The eternal son always has been, will be forever, but he united with creation. Something that had a beginning. Do you know that Jesus? That's the Jesus all through the New Testament. Very plain. But very often we don't stop to ask questions about what we're reading. I know that I can run through the zoo as we say it. Without stopping to think about the animals I'm looking at. So then, in his nature as deity... He has always been God, the Son. The eternal Son united miraculously with humanity to become the God-man. And so, on one hand, He was always the eternal Son. But, as we will see in the next few weeks, when He was ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, He was declared Son. All right. So when this God-man fulfilled his mission by being born of a woman, living in and keeping God's law, dying on the cross of Golgotha, rising again and ascending into heaven, he received the title, the blessing, Son. The eternal Son of God became God-man, the Son. To purge 
his people from their sins. So let's consider how the sovereign, almighty creator became human. That takes us to this subheading. Before the creation of the world, the Father and His eternal Son purposed, typo, P-U-R-P-O-S-E-D, to save His people from their sins. Now, when we read the Word of God carefully, we learn that God had a plan for Jesus Christ and the salvation of His people. It didn't just happen. Paul speaks of it plainly in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. The very thought of what Paul was writing moved him to doxology. I doubt many of us have written a letter, and as we're going along, all of a sudden we're gripped with what we're saying, and we lift up our voices to magnify and glorify and to worship the living God. That's exactly what happens to Paul. Guided by the Spirit as he writes, the power The immensity, the greatness of what he's saying fills him with worship. And it should do the same to us. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, who, meaning the Father, hath blessed us, meaning believers, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Christ Jesus. According as he hath chosen us. In him. Once again. He the father. Has chosen us. Believers. In him. Christ. Before the foundation of the world. There's a plan. God. Has a chosen people. And. All of this chosenness is part of his eternal purpose to save sinners. And it, <clears throat> we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The love of God having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. There it is. We are chosen in Christ. We will be adopted in Christ. That happens when we, that's been purposed before the foundation of the world, but it takes place in history. When the gospel comes to you, when the Holy Spirit comes to you and opens your heart and you realize you are sinful and you need purging, you need cleansing, you need purification. And where do we find it? In the gospel. It sets before us Jesus Christ, the God-man who was crucified on Calvary's cross and rose again that we might be righteous as he not just a little more righteous than we were but as righteous as Christ comes freely by the grace of God it was a plan it was a purpose God talks about it here and it says having predestinated us to adoption we were outside God's family we have wonderful families here in our congregation that have fostered children and then ultimately adopted them into their family. 
they're not from their original, those children are not from the, the, the new parents' bloodline, but they are adopted and legally they have the rights of those who were born into that family. What a beautiful picture of what God does for us. He doesn't have any bloodline children anymore except those who trust their immortal souls to the blood of Jesus Christ. And then God adopts us into his family. What a mercy. What grace. What love. And it's according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Brethren, that's what every worship service here ought to be. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. How is it that sinners such as we can be accepted by a perfectly holy God? Because Jesus Christ, his son, purged us from all our sins, cleansed us by his precious blood. It's all that blessed redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now we hear it again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, that would damn us, not according to our works, but according to his own, here's the word, purpose. God purposed. According to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Before God said, let there be light. Before there was the six days of creation, God had purposed to save his people. He was going to purge them from their dirty and rotten sins through the blood of his son. Glory to God. That doesn't bring you to worship. Something's not right. My brethren, it's right there. There is the plan. It's according to his purpose and grace, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Jesus purposed according to his Father to come into this world, the eternal Son of God purposed to unite with humanity, to unite with humanity so that he could be the sin-bearing substitute for his people. What a great plan. We would never have thought it up. It was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the key. Jesus came into this world. And this is where we talk about incarnational. He became man in eternity. He was the eternal son of God who agreed with his father to save his people, that wonderful gift, that bride that his father gave him to save her from her sins. But that would mean he would have to become man because of the plan and purpose that God had in him. And it's now made manifest. It's, it is clear to us appearing of, uh, by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He came into this world. He 
Amen. And he abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Words. A message that you and I must believe or there is no hope of that purging. There is no hope of that cleansing. We must believe the announcement from heaven. We must believe the report. We must believe the data. There's a data bank in heaven. God knows everything. Everything about you. There is not one pore on your body that he can't number. There's not a hair on your head that he can't number. He knows you inside and out. And he knows that left to yourself, you would run to hell. But he had a plan. And it was to purge us. To purge us from our sins. Jesus abolished death by dying. He had to become a man. Incarnation. Eternal Son. Trinity. Trinity. The Son of God. Man. And we'll talk more about that as we press through this message. Now we hear about this plan from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says it often. He says... <clears throat> In John chapter 5, verse 30, we hear something that he repeatedly says. He says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Which hath sent me. That's the plan. God the Father sent his Son into this world to save his people. That's why Hebrews is so incarnational it talks so much about him being a man but we must always bear the one who is the man Christ Jesus is united to the eternal son of God in such a way as that when you see the man Christ Jesus or at least those that saw him in this world saw the father they saw something godlike in John chapter 5, verse 36 and 37, the works which the Father hath given me, the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. You're seeing God's work in this world when you see me work. He's given me works. And those works bear testimony of him and it bears testimony to who I am. He's not just any man. He is the God-man. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus declared to the Jews, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Left to yourself, there's not one believer in this room that would have ever become a believer. You would have just lived loving your lusts, whatever they are. And you would have died in those lusts and have been forever lost. But there's good news. God saves sinners. Sinners like you, sinners like me. He saves them 
because God sent the son into this world to do that. That was the plan. That was what God purposed. Jesus even said to his enemies, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. When we look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we look and watch him carefully, what we see is the outworking of that plan that God gave us, that God tells us about. As I've said several times, when God said, let there be light, it wasn't just so that Christians could argue about evolution. That was the first step in the redemption of his people. It was the first, it was the first evangelical mission to come into the world, if I can put it that way. He said, let there be light, because God the Father knew that Adam was going to fall. He knew that his people were going to be plunged into the darkness of sin. And he announced the glorious salvation in Genesis 3.15 for the first time. The, head, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first gospel. That's the first time Jesus is mentioned in the scriptures. And everything in the rest of the scriptures unfolds from there. It's the plan worked out. The very fact that we're gathering here today and all around this world there are Christians meeting. It is for one reason. God had a purpose and he's working it out. No matter what those who think they're going to govern the world believe, God rules and he will advance his kingdom whatever they do. And he will use them to his purpose if he is so pleased. Nothing will escape God's good purpose. Nothing. So when we hear when he had by himself purged our sins, we should think of God's amazing mercy, God's amazing grace, God's amazing love in sending his son to do this mighty work of salvation. That's what's behind those words, that eternal plan. Secondly, the son was born of a woman to accomplish his redemptive mission. As we have seen in the Holy Word, the father sent his eternal son into this world and how did the eternal son enter this world? Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 through 35, tells us of this great miracle. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph <clears throat> of the house of David. Now that goes all the way back to 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 14, where God promised that, that David's descendants would be on the throne. And this is the ultimate descendant who's going to be on the throne. We're going to talk about his throne next week. Now, it says, Thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, the angel, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. What's going on? 
And the angel said unto her, Fear unto her, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. This is the plan being worked out. But it's actually going way past his time right here on earth. It actually goes to that point where he rises up into glory and is enthroned at his father's right hand. I mean, the baby hasn't been born and it's already talking about the glorious goal, the kingship of Jesus Christ. To bring forth the Son, shall call his name Jesus. He'll be the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign forever over the house of Jacob. <clears throat> and of his kingdom there shall be no end. All the kingdoms of men fall apart. I mean, just, they do. They have some last longer than others. But when the Lord's ready to lay them in the dust... That down they go. Rome thought it would never fall. It's a memory now. Then said Mary to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I thought, That's a really good question. I don't have a husband. I don't know a man. We know how babies come. How's this going to happen? And the angel answered and said unto her, now, how many of us would believe this? She's talking to an angel. If someone came to you this morning and said, I've got to tell you about the conversation I had with an angel last night. We, we would be fearful for their family, right? We would be fearful for their well-being. Mm, people talking to angels, not in this day of science, right? But he says, she says, well, I don't know, man. How's, how's this going to happen? And the angel tells her. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The very power of God. The Holy Spirit that created the heavens and the earth. The universe. He's going to come upon you. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee. Shall be called the Son of God. She believed it. And in God's purpose, he brought it to pass. Because this was for the salvation of all his people. This was moving toward the purging of our sins. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 20 chronicles the same meeting. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't want to sound irreverent. But I want to say just so that we all get the feel for this. Oh, come on. Come on. The Holy Spirit's going to do what in your womb that hasn't happened before. You can imagine people hearing this. 
the angel came and said, I'm going to have a child. You're not married. This would be mm, shameful. But she didn't know a man. She did not know a man. And the Spirit of God worked on that virgin's womb. And the most astonishing person that has ever lived was the fruit of that miracle. Why? Because God intended to purge the sins of his people. And it had to be someone who was sinless. So this miracle makes this happen. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, Mary, how are we going to tell people this? How are we going to tell? You're going to say, well, an angel did it. No. We read the Bible very often. We don't believe something that our, our husband or our wife or our children tell us. It certainly could happen. But this... This is a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace. It is a miracle of God's plan. He is going to purge his people from all their sins. So that wonderful purpose before the foundation of the world, before he said, let there be light, before he divided the waters from the land, etc., etc., God had purposed to put away sin, not just to put it away, but to wash it, to cleanse it, so that his people could come before him clean, righteous, pure. That's not what we are by nature, but it is what we are by the love of God. Now, while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God's plan. It's God's purpose in God's Son. John chapter 1 verse 14 puts it very simply. And the Word, the eternal Son, here's our incarnational again. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten as of the only begotten of the Father. Full Of grace and truth. So when we hear the words. When he had purged our sin. This was another of the steps. On the way. That's why. Hearing the son. Is better than hearing the prophets. He is the God man. Who accomplished. The father's purpose. It makes him so much better than the greatest of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They were all wonderful and godly men, but they all needed to be cleansed. Even his mother, Jesus' mother, needed her son's cleansing. Well, number three, the son died upon the cross of Calvary to accomplish his redemptive mission. After Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ, 
Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. That's the plan for saving, for purging God's people. Christ himself is telling them, here's the plan. And what happened? Peter said, oh, may that never be. Here, takes the Lord aside. Uh, This is not going to happen. Do we do things like that? Sure possible, isn't it? Oh, I love Jesus, but I don't believe certain things that he tells me. Oh, I hope that's not your place. I certainly hope if it is, I pray the Lord will give you quick repentance. But here's Jesus, the son who will purge us, telling them how sin is going to be conquered. He's telling them plainly, I'm going, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise again. No, may that never be. And he gets the stinging rebuke, the biggest rebuke perhaps in history. Get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God. We can sure talk about Jesus, but it's not talking about him that matters. It's believing his words that matters. Peter was having a problem with that at that moment. Later, he became a great witness for Christ. Praise the Lord. God purges sinners, even like Peter, who denied him three times. The blood of Christ cleanses the foulest. After Jesus was betrayed and turned over to his enemies, Matthew 26, 63 and 67, tells us that the high priest said unto Jesus, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said. Well, you said it. You got it right. Nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, Jesus was going to the cross. What he says here is not a mistake. It is perfectly stated. And all of the men in the room understood what he meant by this. We can read it and sometimes miss it. But Jesus says, after the high priest, most powerful religious figure in Jerusalem says, okay, now you tell us now whether you're the Christ. Well, you've said it. But hereafter you shall see the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, sitting on the right hand of power. That means the right hand of God. That's what we're going to hear about next week, God willing. And coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, said, he's spoken blasphemy. We've heard it. We have him. He just blasphemed. This guy from Nazareth just said that he's going to be coming in the clouds like God. We can kill him. That's exactly the response Jesus planned. Because he was going to purge us from our sins. And it would come at the cost of his own blood. This is the love of God 
friends, it's this love of God. Well, the high priest says, what do you think? All right, y'all, what do you think? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. They were beating him and others smote him with the palms of their hands. Exactly what he predicted. Exactly what he prophesied. Why? Because my sins and your sins merit being spit on and being slapped with fury and being punched out. That's what your sins earn. You believe that? Are you that bad? If you're not that bad, you don't need Jesus, do you? But if you're that bad, he took it for you. And that's exactly how he purges our sins. He took the brutality that should come to every sinner. Oh, it goes on. John 19, verse 1 through 3, reveals that Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. It's not what you do with the king. It's pure mockery. Demonic, satanic mockery. Of the creator. Of God. In human. Flesh. Hail king of the Jews. And they smote him. Jesus' enemies finally wore Pilate down. And delivered him. Therefore. And he Pilate delivered them. Therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus. And led him away. You're seeing the plan. It's being worked out perfectly where the disciples are looking at everything because they didn't believe what Jesus had to say and they're utterly bewildered. What are we seeing? If this is Messiah, how can he be in the hands of his enemies? He's supposed to be conquering his enemies. He was. He was conquering them as they took him away. Oh, he bore his cross and went forth into a place called the place of a skull which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. Wave after wave of God's crushing judgment pounded upon the son's body and upon his soul. God poured out his wrath, his fury, his hatred for all the sins of all God's people for all eternity. That's what's going on. Don't you understand? Those of you that have been here for a while, you know that I say this. You know that I repeat this. And for those of you that haven't, may it ever be in your mind. That should be you. You should not only be sped upon and slapped and stripped naked before all, but you should be scourged and you should be hung on a cross to die in the most unspeakable agony. But Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for you to purge your sins. When just one little phrase is mentioned in Hebrews, 
when he had by himself purged our sins, it summarizes the eternal purpose of God. It summarizes the eternal purpose of God. We are out of time. I will summarize so that we can have a coherent start next week. But you see, when he had purged our sins, <clears throat> wasn't finished yet simply because he died. Wasn't finished yet. The sun rose again the third day to accomplish the mission of redemption, to, to accomplish his redemptive mission. It's the resurrection that says to the world, I receive his sacrifice. That sacrifice that cleanses sinners from their filth. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, the end of the Sabbath. It was the end of the Sabbath as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Angels again. And came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. These are soldiers, hardened soldiers, passed out. And the angel answered and said unto the women, fear not ye. I know that ye seek Jesus. Listen which was crucified, paying the penalty for our sins. He's not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. The plan is now accomplished. He will ascend. We'll talk about that next week. He will ascend into glory and be seated at the Father's right hand where he, even at this moment, is ruling. He's not only interceding, but as King Messiah, he's ruling. No one sits on God's throne other than someone that is God, Jesus Christ, the God-man. There is now something in heaven beyond our imagination. Truly God, the Son, and truly man, glorified, ruling the universe. You believe that? That's the plan almost at full completion. That will come when he returns. But friends, it's that purpose behind the phrase, he by himself purged our sins. That is the only reason you will rise up and enter glory and be with Christ forever. Because you repented of your sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And his blood and all that he did for you were applied to your wicked record, washes away all of your sins, 
Because as he hung on the cross, he was bearing your penalty. He, all of his, all of our sin was on him. And all of his righteousness comes to us by faith in him. Because he purged our sins. So we close with this. In our next message, we will consider Christ's enthronement in heaven, God willing, so that we may more clearly understand the son who became son. May the Holy Spirit of God fill our hearts with love and adoration and wholehearted worship for the God who now speaks to us through that son. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy mercy and grace. We thank thee that we will now come to that table that speaks of the blood shed for us, that speaks of the body broken for us, that is a mini gospel set before us. And I pray that we will commune with our Savior with all our hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that are visiting us, we, were, we are going to have the Lord's Supper right now. You are welcome to stay. Uh, other than that, um, if you are going to exit, we thank the Lord that he brought you here. And we pray that we will see you again. We'll take about a five, maybe ten minute break. And then we will gather again for the Lord's Supper. Let's take that break now.